0: Well, good morning. I hope everybody's doing well this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church. I want to welcome you. Um, We are actually in now what would be week five uh, of a series called Imago Day. And when you walked in this morning, you were handed what we call a worship guide. And if you look inside of it, as with most series that we do, uh, there's a schedule of topics that we're covering. Um, and and kind of the the direction that we're going, how we're following through, uh, some of the key scriptures that we'll be looking at, and that's there for you so you kind of know where we're going and uh, how we're going to get there, and, and then maybe for some of you too who um, are, are always looking for ways to to interact with with God during the week, and you're wanting maybe you've wanted to read the Bible, you didn't know really where to start. Maybe some of these key scriptures are a great place for you to start reading, and you can kind of prepare ahead of time for the week if that's something that you wanted to do. And so if you'll notice, we're in week five of our series, Imago Dei. Imago Dei, Latin meaning image of God. And the Bible teaches that all people were created in God's image. And so we've just been spending our time together talking about what does that mean and what does it matter? Uh, and have been looking at different social and personal implications of being made in the image of God. And we've talked about um, the beauty in diversity and the way that God has created all people. We talked about the value and the sanctity of human life. We talked about, in addition to that, the value of all people's lives all over the world and how we have a mandate Um, to go and to share the gospel and the good news of Jesus with all people um, so that all people have that opportunity to be reconciled back to their creator in whose image they were created. We've talked last week um, very personally. You know, the first couple weeks were kind of focused outward in how we interact with other people. Last week was very inward focused in what is the very personal implication for my life today of being made in the image of God. And so, the next two weeks, this week and next week, are kind of like a two-part message, but in reality, it's, they, they all fit together. And so it's really hard to take one message out of context, um, and it's all trying to build this one picture over these six weeks of the image of God, what it means, and why it matters. And so we're going to jump in distinctively, look at this week and next, what does it mean that God created men, and what does it mean that God created women? Uh, and our theme verse for this series has been out of Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and it's going to be on the screen for you. And it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so we're going to just spend two weeks um, looking at some of what makes us unique and creative in the side of God and how we complement one another. Here's what this is not. This is not a discussion on what makes you biologically male or female. Right? I have, a, I have two biologically male children, but I would not be comfortable calling either one of them a man. Right? They are boys, uh, and they act like boys. Um, and so there's a distinction between just what your biology may say and being a man, right? I have a daughter as well, and I would call her a girl. I would not be comfortable saying she is a woman. And so we're going to look at what it means. What did God design us for uh, specifically? Um, this, so, but this is also not going to be two weeks on gender stereotypes, uh, on, on what... Uh, you may or may not think I'm already going to say about these topics. We're going to look very specifically at what the Bible says and what God has called men to and what God has called women to. And I think there'll be many things that maybe you'll be surprised at and many things that you you may be confronted by. But we're going to look at what the Bible says and how that applies to each of our lives. You know, I don't know. Does anybody... In here, familiar with the name? You can read hand, You don't have to. Uh, with Alan Dershowitz, you familiar with that name? He's a civil rights lawyer. Um, he's worked on a couple big cases. Um, he uh, is currently he teaches at Harvard Law School um, and is the youngest tenured professor. I think he was tenured in his twenties. Uh, the youngest tenured professor in the history of Harvard Law School. Uh, big civil rights lawyer. Um, very popular and has written a lot of books. I think he's written over 20 books. I think six of them have been on New York Times bestseller list. And, um, very intriguing guy, very intriguing reads, um, very interesting look at society from a very non-Christian perspective. Um, and so he wrote a book, uh, I think this was early 90s, called Shouting Fire, uh, civil Liberties in a turbulent Age, and is asking the question, where do human rights come from? Um, and this was a popular enough book that he wrote another one uh, a little more recently, a little more hands-on up on and something a little more easier to manage. Um, still a great book. Uh, I don't know if it fully replaces his big one, but uh, Rights from Wrongs, a Secular Theory of the Origins of Rights. Uh, very intriguing Uh, reads, uh, about where do human rights come from. And he poses four basic ideas or four possibilities of where human rights come from. The first one, he says, is they come from God um, because we were created um, by uh, some higher being with special purpose. But because he's not a believer Um, he rejects that possibility and idea and in his book quickly moves beyond it and just says, we can't go there. We can't have that discussion. Uh, Leave it to the religious people who want to talk about it, but we can't talk about that. So he he scratches that one off the list. Uh, The next one that he brings up is he says, maybe human rights come from nature and says, maybe if we look around uh, as we see how other things are, um, we'll get this idea that this is where the idea of human rights come from, that we can observe it in nature. And, and as he re- reads and thinks and studies and, and in, interacts with other scholars, says, no, we can't take human rights from nature because actually nature is contrary to the very things we say human rights are, that nature is all about the strong eating the weak, that might makes right. That in nature, um, there's no respect for life or the individual rights of anything else. And says, so, so actually our desire to protect humans for some special re- reason actually goes contrary to everything else we see in nature. So they can't come from nature. And so then he asks the question, well, maybe human rights are just legislated. Maybe we don't discover human rights, maybe we create them. And so he begins to work through that logic of what that might mean, uh, but in the end says that can't be it. We can't get human rights from legislation. They can't be created. Because then you would have to acknowledge and accept that whatever the simple majority want, 51%, is deemed legitimate. So if 51% of the population wants to exterminate and annihilate one particular form or type of human being, there's nothing you can say against it. Because if it's only legislated, then it can be just as easily changed. And your legislation can actually work against the human rights of other people. So it can't be created. uh, Even though certainly in societies we understand some rational thinking and we can we can help the process, they can't be created. They have to be discovered. And so then he is left with, okay, where do human rights come from? They can't be created. They have to be discovered. They can't be discovered in nature. And we're not going to entertain the discussion of they were there because of God. So where do they come from? And and he has spent a lot of time writing, Well, mm, we don't really know. And at best, maybe human rights come from our experiences of injustice. So he says, we see something, and we just inherently know it's not right, so then we codify it and create a human right. But what he fails to acknowledge, and what a lot of his critics have come against him for, is essentially what he said is, there's still this inherent human right behind our experience of injustice. So you can't start with the experience of injustice because the only reason it can be claimed injustice is because there's something higher that stands behind it and a fascinating discussion that happens in the secular realm about where human rights come from and I'm not one for apologetic arguments you know people love to to have arguments about the existence of God and things like that and I'm not a huge fan of them, only because I don't think you can argue someone into belief. You can't argue someone into heaven. And so I think apologetic arguments have a very limited space. If, I mean, I, I know a lot of those arguments. And, and you know, if, if I argue with someone on the street and I do a really good job of making them feel dumb, you think they're like, oh, now I want to believe in God. That's, yeah, right? So, um, so I just don't, I think they have a very limited place. But I think one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God is where do human rights come from? Because you can't explain it outside of intentional, specific, purposeful creation. Outside of that, you cannot find, and there are thousands of books written by men who are much smarter than me, who can't figure it out. Because when you take God off the table, you, you don't have an answer for where human rights Come from, And essentially that's a part, that's a piece of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks is what is it about us that God has made unique and why does it matter? And so what we've done is we've looked big picture and I want us to zoom in a little bit. So we were reading in Genesis 1 just a minute ago. Now we're going to read in Genesis 2. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to it. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, that's great. If you don't own a Bible or you don't like the one you do own, those Bibles that are in those seats are our gift to you today. Feel free to take those home. We would be honored if you did. Um, if you don't have a paper Bible, uh, you can pull out your phone or tablet. That's how most people prefer to do it. Anyways, I think it's really quick to open up the Bible app, uh, and you're welcome to do that as well. And so, so chapter 1 of Genesis is very big picture about creation. It does not answer all the questions that we would like to ask of it, but it gives us a big picture about the nature and the character of God and his intentionality. Chapter 2 zooms in and kind of reviews the creation of human beings from a very smaller picture. And so, chapter 2 is really zoomed in on what God did at the very end of creation. Again, like Genesis 1, it doesn't answer all the questions we may like to ask of it, but it gives us a picture. Uh, of God's intentionality. And so I'm just going to start in verse 15 in Genesis chapter 2. We're skipping a few details, but we're getting to the meat and the heart of it. Verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, and while yeah, excuse me, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman, and brought her to the man. Then he, then the man said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here's what I want to do quickly, um, is is I want to build a little bit of a definition that I think we can work off of um, to talk about the part of the purpose and design behind God creating man. Now, this message and next week's message go hand in hand. Um, We'll talk about God's intention and purpose for the woman uh, next week and how uh, the man and the woman complement one another. Um, And I want you to know, too, that sometimes some of the things that I say today about men in general, um, not everything is mutually exclusive. So um, because it applies to the man does not mean or imply that it does not apply to women and vice versa. And we'll see that uh, as we move along. Although I do believe the Bible teaches very clearly that God has created us very distinctly. And so here's going to be a little bit of a working definition. I may need to explain some of it. And then we're going to look at some other texts in the Bible and see how this kind of fleshes itself out. Um, The role of the man, and I'm going to use a word that we don't use very often, in headship is to cultivate his surroundings to bring about flourishing. Now, here's why I chose to use the word headship. Um, one, because it, it symbolizes responsibility, and we're going to actually look at the way God is going to judge men in the end. Uh, but also, um, because I didn't want to use the word leadership, because I, I think to use the word leadership, it implies that women don't lead or that God hasn't called them to lead, or God hasn't created them to lead, and I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So, so sometimes these words, I have to kind of pick and choose uh, what's going to carry the most or least baggage. And so here, I'm going to read this again, and then we're going to, to flesh it out a little bit. The role of the man, as God created him, in headship is to cultivate his surroundings to bring about flourishing. To cultivate his surroundings to bring about Flourishing. And so you think about Adam's role in the garden, and it said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And we skipped some parts, but essentially God has created the world, uh, and it's not all beautiful, it's, all beautiful, it's not all perfect. Uh, there's a lot of parts where uh, everything is not tilled just right, and God creates Eden to be distinctly different than the rest of the world. And essentially, God gives Adam the task of making the rest of the world look like Eden. And so Adam's job is to work and keep the garden and expand it and to cultivate his surroundings to bring about flourishing. And so that was God's design and intent and and his mission for Adam in the garden and it extends beyond just yard work but begins to extend to every aspect of a man's life. And I want to look at maybe two texts in particular to kind of help illustrate how this begins to work itself out. And so if you want to turn there, we're going to jump way to the other end of the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5. And You're welcome to jump there with me. It'll be on the screen uh, if you'd like to look at it there. And here, uh, the Bible is talking about um, husbands and wives, and and their interaction with one another. It says this, in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice this discussion on husbands and wives and their relationship with one another is directly tied to Genesis chapter 2 that we just read. That therefore, look, it's even in quotes in your New Testament because it's quoting Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so God has uniquely called the man... To cultivate his surroundings to bring about flourishing and that includes the home. To cultivate the systems and the people in his home to bring about their flourishing. A couple ways that that happens. Um, One is it's sacrificial. Verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, Usually, when we think of leadership or headship, um, it usually carries certain connotations that we may apply in a political or a business world, right? You do whatever it takes to get to the top, and once you're at the top, you do what it takes to stay there. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite of how headship, God-ordained headship, works. That when you get to the top, because God's holding you responsible, you intentionally make sure you lower yourself underneath those around you to serve them. And one of the ways that men have been called to cultivate their surroundings is through sacrifice, is through putting the needs and the wants of their wives, or their wife, I should say that a little more carefully, of their wife. And children, if, those, if that's applicable, above their own desires, above their own wants, above their own needs. That's what it means to be in headship and to cultivate your surroundings. Does it mean you put what you want, need, and desire aside to serve those around you so that you can ensure that your wife and your children are flourishing? Not that you're the greatest fantasy football player the world has ever known, or you have the best hobbies, but that you sacrifice what you want and desire and need so that you can ensure that your wife and your children flourish. Now, this is one of those times where we're not talking mutual exclusivity between men and women, because clearly, women sacrifice. Women sacrifice... uh, For their home as well. Women are called to sacrifice for their husbands. They're called to sacrifice for their children. But men have been given a unique and explicit call that if you want to live in the headship God designed, you'll lay down your own wants, needs, and desires so that those around you can flourish. That's one picture of headship. In addition to sacrificial... Headship is to be spiritual. Verse 27, so that he might present the church. So it's talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and as a picture, as a mirror for what men are supposed to do for their families and their homes. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That men are called in their headship to... Cultivate their surroundings so that those in their home flourish spiritually. Which means that they take a distinctive step of leadership to protect their children and their wives from seeing or hearing things that would be detrimental to them. It means that men put in protections in their own life to prevent them from seeing and hearing things that could be detrimental to them. That they're going to do whatever it is necessary to promote the spiritual flourishing in their home. There is no way that you can nurture the spiritual flourishing of those in your home by being passive. This takes an active role. Again, this doesn't mean that women don't play any role in the spiritual development of their family, but God has held men to a unique responsibility and will hold them up to a unique accountability for the way in which they cultivate their surroundings for flourishing. And let's look at one more. So the headship of man in the home is to be sacrificial, spiritual. And third, provisional. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. Men have been called to cultivate their surroundings, to bring about flourishing, by ensuring that their family is provided with what is needed. Now, let me, let me make some statements about this. Okay? Okay. Um, First of all, I don't think the Bible teaches that the wife has to be—I mean—that the husband has to be the primary breadwinner. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Um, I think the Bible is very clear that men are to not be lazy, and God has very strict judgment for lazy men. And you can see, without even looking to the Bible, that where there are lazy men, um, systems and flourishing crumbles. So uh, my background in education is in sociology. And so a lot of what uh, I spent my early years of studying doing was studying social patterns and systems and their influence on different people. Reading guys like Alan Dershowitz and talking about where these things like human rights come from and how they influence society. There is no shortage of studies that will show when a husband or a man decides to abdicate their responsibilities, that flourishing begins to crumble. It happens on individual levels, and it happens on societal levels. How many times has the government paid for a study to show that absentee fathers are detrimental to the well-being of a community? That where uh, there is a trend of, of absentee fathers' that that drugs that drug use tends to go up that participation and success in education begins to go down like you don't have to be a christian to say oh this is what the bible says this must be true you can look at non-christian non-religious secular studies that'll show that when men do not take their responsibility that flourishing begins to crumble I don't think the Bible teaches that, uh, that the man has to be the primary breadwinner. If that is it true in your situation? Great. If not, great. Well, I hope your wife makes a lot of money. I, I, that's okay. But the Bible is very clear that a lazy man is detrimental to everyone around him. And so whether or not you bring home the biggest paycheck is not the issue. What is the issue is, are you ensuring that your wife and your children have what they need to flourish? Again, that may not always be that they have whatever they want, but that they have what they need to flourish. Whether or not you're the one or the sole one or the primary one who makes that happen, I don't think the Bible is very clear on whether that matters. What does matter is God will hold you accountable for it. Whether you're the one bringing home the paycheck or not. And we'll look at some of those texts in a minute. I want to say this too. And this is true in this arena and every other arena where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. So for the men in here, when you struggle with a particular issue, maybe you struggle with laziness, maybe you struggle with being uh, intentional, and taking action. Maybe you struggle uh, with with being sacrificial. Where the ideal is not present, present grace abounds, and what enables us to be who God has called us to be is God's grace, not you being better, more Type A, having more to do list. It's God's grace that enables you. And when the man is not home or not there or absentee or has abandoned or has died, and a single mother or a widow is, is at the place where she has to do it all, where the ideal is not present, grace abounds. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. Uh, God answers no one else's prayers more powerfully than mothers in the Bible. If you think about, if you're familiar with your Bible and you've read it, more prayers by mothers are answered in the Bible than anybody else. When mothers beg God to do something on behalf of, for their home and their, and their children, and God's grace abounds where the ideal is not present. Um, so, God has called men to a unique role in the headship and the cultivating of those around him for flourishing in the home and for the church. I want to move through these last points quickly. I actually have a ton of scriptures in my notes. and I don't think I'm going to read them all. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read this quickly. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's a um, I don't really know why the Greek, I mean, the English translations love to translate the Greek. Uh, which is what it was really written in an overseer Uh, sometimes some of your versions may say elder Um, this is this is not a term we use often at least not in many of our circles where we come from but an overseer is is exactly what it says it's somebody who oversees the function and the life of the church and so this was a kind of an official office uh, at, at this time we would probably usually call them pastors today we don't really use overseers very often He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we read that for, for one main reason, is to build a picture of that God has called these same ideals for the man to, enable, to, to em, embody in the home as in the church. That he's supposed to live a life that's sacrificial, To enable the flourishing of those in the church. uh, That he is supposed to uh, live a life that is directional and spiritual. To develop and, and promote the flourishing of those in the church. And provisional. To make sure that those in the church have what they need for their spiritual flourishing. And here, a lot of what Paul focuses on. Paul's the one who wrote... Uh, that letter to Timothy that we now call 1 Timothy, uh, is focused on the character of the man so that he is qualified to do these things. Now, here's here's how I kind of want to land the plane today. Again, uh, many of these things are not mutually exclusive, but here's what I think is most unique about men And the way that God has called them to headship in order to cultivate their surroundings for flourishing. Uh, I'm not going to read it all. I'm actually just going to summarize it. Chapter 3 of Genesis. So we've already looked at chapter 1, big picture, all of creation. Chapter 2, zoom in on the creation of men and women. Chapter 3 is where sin enters the picture. It's the dreaded eating of the fruit. Satan comes in and says, Eve, why don't you take a bite? Looks good, doesn't it? She says, no, 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 God said I can't touch it. Uh, otherwise I'll die. And Satan says, this is my paraphrase, by the way. Uh, Satan says, I don't think God knows what he's talking about. Look at it. Why wouldn't he want you to have it? You should, you should have it. And she says, that looks pretty good. I think I'll have it. She takes a bite and hands it to her husband. And he takes a bite. And it's in that moment that sin enters in the picture and what God had created perfect is fractured. Now, if we want to go through chronologically and we want to be really logical about it, we can say, okay, who sinned first? That's not the question God asks. And that's not the way God looks at it. When God shows up on the scene, he calls Adam to account for what's taken place. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read this quickly. It should be on the screen for you as well. In a discussion about the difference between Adam and Christ, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I'm going to jump down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man, this is talking about Christ and Adam, comparing the two, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Who does God hold responsible for that moment in the garden? He holds Adam responsible. And I think this is probably the clearest picture of headship and the way that God has designed men to operate within the home and the church is that while men and women, and we'll talk about the, the mutual uh, Complementary relationship in the way God has designed women, and, and they're going to fun- they're going to do many of those things. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to lead spiritually. They're going to they're going to to provide. But in the end, God will hold the man accountable as head, and how he did it. God will hold the man accountable for the amount of flourishing that took place around him. It's not a discussion of can women do this, should men do this. It's God will one day hold men accountable for the flourishing of those around him. And he not only did it for Adam, but he's also going to do it in other ways. And and I'm going to read two quick ones, and these are regarding church leaders. Just to give you the same perspective Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. This is talking within the context of a church. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. James, the half-brother of Jesus, will write this uh, to other future church leaders. James 3, 1, Not many of you who should become, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God is going to hold people accountable for what he put before them. And so this call is for men to take responsibility because you will be held accountable and judged for the flourishing around you. I think we get a picture of what God expects the man to do and be. Sacrificial. Which means he's not a guy who domineers Or tries to take his leadership position and force it upon his children or his wife. But he leads from underneath. He leads from behind. He leads in a sacrificial way. He doesn't have to be the primary breadwinner. But it's his responsibility to ensure that his wife and his children have whatever it is they need in order for them to flourish. And he's going to take an active step in leading them spiritually so that they are in an atmosphere. That their surroundings have been cultivated so that they can flourish. And it's what God has called men to as a picture of what Christ has done. And this is where it lands home for every one of us in here. No matter what position in life you find yourself in, what your role in the home is, whether you're male or female, that the picture of a man and the way he's supposed to live is modeled after Christ who in a sacrificial way sacrificed his own life. Jesus paid it all. Just like we sang earlier, He led the ultimate sacrificial life for our spiritual flourishing. That in the end, Jesus provided everything we needed. When we were lost in sin, because like Adam and Eve, we've rebelled and decided God doesn't know what he's talking about, it would be better if I ran my life, if I were God for me. And Jesus provided what we needed but could never provide for ourselves. A way to forgiveness of sin and being reconciled with our creator and whose image we were created. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for our time together this morning. Jesus, I thank you that you have served as the ultimate model for all of us. That you lived a life that was sacrificial. You paid it all for us. That as men and women, we can see a picture of what we're called to because you modeled it so perfectly. That you worked for the spiritual nourishment of our lives. And that ultimately you provided what we could never provide for ourselves. Jesus, thank you. And it's only by your grace that we're able to grow and to become more and more of who you created it and have called us to be. I want you to keep your eyes closed right where you are. So this is one of those messages that's a, maybe a little harder to, to kind of give you some step by step, This is what we do with it. This is how we put it into practice in our lives. So a couple things that I want you to do. I, I want you just to, to think about how the picture of what Christ has done for us as an example and what God has called, specifically as we talk today, men to, how your life matches up to that. Now, here's what we know. We all fall short, that we all have a long ways to go. And that only do, not only do we need the grace of God to enable us to get better, we need the grace of those around us to forgive us when we fail. And men, you're going to fail. You're, you're not always going to do it perfectly and you're not always going to live up to that standard that Christ set for us. But rather than allowing that to discourage us from being who God's called us to be, by knowing that Jesus did it for us should be that encouragement that we should get back up and keep pursuing what He's called us to. And to the women in the room, the men around you have failed. Some of them in different ways. They each have their strengths and weaknesses. They may be a great provider and but terrible at sacrificing, they may be great at sacrificing, but terrible at taking initiative in certain areas. And we'll talk more about how you can play a role in, in this whole story t- next week. But maybe today, just just pray for the men in your life. God's grace would be poured out on them to enable them and empower them to be who God has called them to be and that maybe in a similar way you can find ways to help cultivate them so that they can flourish in their headship that they can flourish in those responsibilities that God has called them to And for those of you who are frustrated because you feel like you're doing it on your own, where the ideal lacks, grace abounds. God's grace is more than enough. The Bible says that God's grace is sufficient for us. And God will be able to step in and do what, maybe, what you can't or what you feel overwhelmed at having to do. But today, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the goodness of Christ that He set the example for us. Because ultimately, we're here not to look at ourselves. We're here to look at Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. Jesus, will you be honored by all that we say, think, do, and sing here in this moment as we worship you for who you are and what you've done for us. We love you. Praise in your name.